This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. And Luz Maria Frias couldn't be with us today, but we have a special guest today. Uh, she is somebody who was my first storytelling teacher. Uh, I don't know what to call you in community. Auntie Rose, uh, 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 Miss McGee, like uh, you, you've been so part and parcel to my formation of my identity, my black identity in that to be in particular. But we have none other than the Mrs. Rose McGee who is joining us today um, uh, to talk about some of the work that she's doing. So uh, I'm, I just had to gush a little bit because in community, she's like one of the folks in community who can be like, Anthony, I need you too. And I've got my boots on before she finishes. So uh, <laughs> welcome, welcome to counter stories. Uh, Miss McGee, I ain't going to call you Rose. So. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you for that, Anthony. Thank you very much. And I, I have to say, I appreciate you always saying yes whenever we call on you for whatever it is. So thank you so much. <laughs> That's absolutely. So so we we, we are going to get into your background a little bit, but I wanted to just catch us, catch us up together. If you've been listening to Counter Stories, this February, we've been doing our kind of Black History Month treatment. And we began with the origins of Black History Month and let the conversation go where it, go where it went, because that's how we do on Counter Stories. We start and we go where the conversation and the spirit moves. Uh, and yeah. then the second episode, we dove into some, you know, if we're going to Google and think about what to look at. One of the aspects is looking at history, but we know that Negro History Week, as it began, was about not just looking at history, but not just looking at accomplishments, not just looking at individual people, but culture and concepts and ways of being that that reimagine and repull African heritage identity back into the minds of folks for which that identity is being taken away. And we know that across so many identity intersections. And so today we're going to be talking about culture. And I thought that makes all the sense in the world to bring in somebody who has done a wonderful treatment of one aspect of our culture. And that is our sweet potato comfort pie. Uh, oh. Miss <laughs> McGee, you, you come to us um, wearing many hats from the Humanity Center to your work with sweet potato comfort pies and looking at uh, bringing our culture to bear in the areas and the events that matter. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the cultural things to explore in this reinvigoration that happens every every February. Uh, so uh, Ms. McGee, if you will just talk a little bit about some of the work that you're up to, and then I'm going to bring us into this conversation about uh, how Black culture should play into our observance of Black History Month. Mm, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, regarding the whole notion of Black history, it's interesting. What's on my mind today is um, a woman by the name of Addie Fisher. And Addie Fisher was the first Black person to have a cookbook published. And of course, in that cookbook is her sweet potato pie. <laughs> and um, that's just sort of, you know, near and dear to my heart these days, obviously. But when I first learned about um, 
Mrs. Addie Fisher and her whole story around cooking Southern style. And it was published in 1893, 1893. Hmm. And the, the copy that I had um, was an earlier version. And then someone gave me a gift of one that was published more recently. But it's just interesting, you know, to, to read. I wish I had it with me. Uh, how... Uh, she measured things. You know how we talk about a pinch of yes. this and a, just just <laughs> put in a, a a little thimble full of this. Okay, so what's a thimble and what's a pinch, and how do you how do you know how to measure these things and make it just right? And even now, uh, when I make a sweet potato pie, I don't use those measuring things. I just put it all in there, and it's kind of fun when we're doing a big uh, a big batch of baking, and people are, <laughs> people are like. Uh, well, are we going to measure? I'm like, no, <laughs> you're just going to pour. And when I say stop pouring, you stop pouring. And then you're going to taste it and see how it is. And I have to tell you this, you talk about cultural cultural differences, right? So the Minnesota Historical Society, actually it's uh, Mill City, Mill City Museum, had me come down a few weeks back and um, the woman in charge, bless her heart, uh, Winnie, she says, Rose, I tried, I tried my best to do it the way you do it, but I had to measure. <laughs> to measure. <laughs> <laughs> and so she did, it was measured and it really did taste delicious. I said, this is so good. So she says, well, it's your recipe. I said, yeah, but not with the, the measurements, but you did a beautiful job with that. So something as simple as that, you know, and remembering back when I first decided I wanted to make sweet potato pies and I called my grandmother. Um, and ask her, how can I make it? And I said, can you give me the recipe? And she says, what recipe? Baby, I don't have recipes in my head. So <laughs> it's the way we are, you know, it's it's, it's part of the culture. And um, when, when things come from the head, they're coming, in our case, from the heart. Mm -hmm. And that is where, where, where it's going. And when you know that um, little Shirley over here might really like her pie, this kind of way or hmm. little John over here prefers his cornbread like this, then uh, they learn that. They learn that, you know, I was making some cornbread not long ago too. And I do, I put that, that cast iron skillet up there and I mm -hmm. get that, that grease good and hot. Mm -hmm. And then I pour some of that grease into the batter and then bake it. And that's just the way you do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What what I love about what I love about just that and in, in, in its connections to the original intent of, of Negro History Week is that, you know, having a, a full bodied celebration of all of us beyond the surface markers of culture, um, it's something that doesn't often get brought to the table in our observances, especially even if we manage to get beyond the big five that we talk about every year. And, and I like the way that um, a well-known uh, podcaster and social media um, uh, person, um, uh, Conscious Lee, talks about this. He's often where we want to consume the culture without having any engagement with the community from which that culture comes from. So I only want to take the things that may be comfortable or noticeable to me. And we don't have any of the deeper conversations about what goes into that. What you describe in, you know, I'm not going to measure. I'm like, it's just... We're going to pour. And then when I say stop pouring, that's it. We, we in that we are there required. We, we have to requ be required to rely 
on the cultural community that is that from which it comes from in ways that's in many other ways we kind of commodify and only take what is palatable to ourselves. And I think there's some really deep things that are within that. Um, and, and, and I, much of which I've learned from you, of course, throughout, uh, but I'm, 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 I, I'm reminded of that most, most importantly in the work that I saw both during pandemic and through some of our racial unrest in which you showed that our culture, our being black heritage, African heritage culture can be a positive um, not can be, is a positive way with which to deal with the everyday challenges of the world, which is not something that often gets represented. And I'm just curious, you know, what you've seen in being able to, in this work and many, in your story circle work and so much work that you do in community, how you see our, our culture being an asset and salve to the everyday experiences of the world. Mm. Well, call me a little uh, fuddy-duddy if you wish, but when it comes to many of our aspects of culture, I still think that the best presenters and the best tellers of it, 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 it comes from people themselves, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I would not want someone to call me in and ask me to tell the story about the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I would, I can share with you what I know about some things, but you need to bring in someone from the culture. That and that is something that, uh, I don't know what's happening with, with, with our folks. We're, we're with the people when you know, yeah, I mean, I applaud you if you go out and you study and you learn all of these things, but don't act like you the authority on other folks' culture. <laughs> and that's the piece that's starting to irritate me these days. It really is. Um, and just understand how to be respectful and 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 not act like, you know, you know it all. So I remember when we took the pies down to Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, after the killings there. One of the um, reporters, because there was a host of reporters there when we got there, asked Bishop Goff, who was, you know, the, he had 30 plus churches under his jurisdiction. And because all of the pastors had been killed, he was actually there um, running the church and was managing the Bible study that particular night. So the reporter asked him, well, what do you think about this woman bringing all these sweet potato pies down here from Minnesota? And he looked at the reporter and he said, sweet potato pie, why not sweet potato pie? That's mm. who we are. That's us. And I thought, hallelujah, he gets it. He understands. And so that simple little thing there, I consider the sweet potato pie as being the sacred dessert of Black culture. And when we understand what sacred means when it comes to that which we identify with, then it becomes something that we want to protect. It doesn't mean that we want to keep it to ourselves, but we want to honor it in a way that it doesn't become over commercialized and, and taken for granted. And then someone comes along and says, oh, no, uh, mm -mm. there was no underground railroad over here. No, because so-and-so said so. Well, what does so-and-so know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's like, um, 
I, and I, I use these things because these are actual things that I've been in conversations with more recently. And, you know, if, if, if people have passed down stories for a reason, there's a reason for it. And why does someone feel that they need to come in and say it? Nah, that's not the way it was because I'm white and I got the degree. I know, I, I you know, I'm, it's just not my day today. <laughs> to talk about that but i just really believe you know we've got to protect our stuff better miss mcgee if i if i was to jump in because i'm i'm thinking about my own my own experience and being an individual that's that's native american and black and my father was from des moines and so and so while i grew up in North Minneapolis in the black community, it's the connections to my dad's family that I tended to experience more of what it meant to be black. Mm -hmm. And, and, but, you know, not misconstrue that. So when I think of my own experience and I think about the cultural types of things that I picked up as a youth, as a young man interacting with my cousins and uncles down in Des Moines, you know, there are certain, and when I, when I juxtapose that now with myself as an adult and my experience in the community, the thing that I have come to realize is that being black um, is not a, or just like being Native American, is not a one thing fits all. It's there are different kind of traditions and cultural ways and things that happen. There are many similarities, but there are a lot of differences. And and I think in where you, uh, you know, so my grandparents, both my grandparents, uh, my dad's mom and dad both came from Missouri. Right. And, and you know, we did this kind of family thing. And, and while our roots go back down south, you know, don't get me wrong. They, the roots go back down south. They, they, my uh, great, uh, my great grandmother and grandfather owned land down in Missouri. But I'm saying all that because, you know, there were certain things that I picked up from my father when he cooked that was totally different from my mother when she cooked, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I can relate to what you're talking about because I didn't learn how to cook using measurements. I learned how to cook by seasoning to taste mm -hmm. and watching my father. But there were certain things, you know, there, it, there were certain things he introduced um, on the menu that I realize now came more from that black experience, like black eyed peas and, and ham hocks and, and different types of mixtures that, you know, we grew up eating at the time that we just didn't know where it was coming from. You know, you weren't told that this was part of the black experience but there was one distinct meal my father made every year and it was for new years and he <laughs> you know and i mentioned this before he would make spaghetti with greens chitlins and cornbread not the sweet cornbread but the cornbread cornbread right, you know the, right. and and uh and that that was a distinct meal that um, we could count on for every New Year's. And I know that came from his parents. 
Yeah, I know that came from Des Moines, right? <laughs> and and so culture, you know, I don't know how anyone could, especially someone who studies, can say that they're an uh, could be an expert when it's so fluid. Hmm. You know, I went with I, yeah. exactly. I went with a friend of mine <laughs> who's black down to Park in Arkansas. And my experience down there was totally different than anything I've experienced up here. Mm-hmm. Totally different. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> your experience mm-hmm. is going to be mm-hmm. different than another black person's experience, depending on where they live, when they grew up, yada, da, da, da. But it, yet it's still the black experience. Does right. that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I said all that because I'm still waiting for some <laughs> of your sweet potato pie. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Well, yeah, Anthony. There's, yeah, I, I'm on it. I got you. I got you. I heard the signal loud and clear. Uh, but, but no, I think you know, in 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 all that was shared so far, I mean, one of the things that we often are taught to do is to try to separate, right? And so, I, I was in a, a session, and they show that iceberg where it says, "In the top of the iceberg, you only see a portion of the mm-hmm. whole," and that oftentimes in culture we only deal with the consumable. Touch, touchable things on the top and we don't get to the core beliefs and things that undergird it, the roles, the 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 mental models, the ways of being uh, below that. And and to so somebody could hear what you just said, Don, and 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 big brother Don, I, I am really I, I've, I've tried uh, brother Don so much in community to just call you by first name and and my grandmother's in my heart my heart screaming so you gonna I'm just gonna have to call you big brother Don or something because <laughs> I can't just come out your first name so um like there's I hear that story about your father and to me there are all these like markers and tendrils that go all the way down to history and community and the stories about why that why chitlins Right. Mm-hmm. And a follow up question. Did he even like him or was it just the thing that reminds me and marks marks back to something else? Because I have a whole lot of family members who can't tell me today if they really actually like the chitlins they eaten or if it's just that much connection to the story <laughs> that's there. Like like there's a whole lot that goes into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, he he liked the chitlins. So when he you know, when he first made them, we were all leery. Because we we asked him what chitlins were, right? And so once he told us that it was the intestines of a pig, right? And that's why, you know, there's that sometimes unbearable order when they're they're cooking. But uh, my experience with chitlins is that there's, you don't get that taste. You don't get that flavor. To me, chitlins actually didn't have a lot of taste to it. It, it 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 depended on how Just you season it. <laughs> My dad ate everything with hot sauce. So chitlins, I put some salt, pepper, and some hot sauce on there, and they're a little rubbery to chew. And other than that, it's like tripe. There's not a lot of taste to it. So we could eat it, right? It's just that we didn't like being around while they were being prepared. <laughs> well, because oh, then it then they then they are emitting the. The function that it used to serve, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But the yeah. taste itself, I thought, was very neutral, and and it depended on what you what you uh, season it with. It's about the seasoning, and yep. I don't. Eat, yeah, it's. 
I don't eat pork anymore, but I used to make sure I had chitlins at least once a year. Mm. And uh, later in life, my father started cleaning them for me, so I didn't even have to clean them. And that was quite a treat. Yep. But now, of course, you know, there's really a couple of good brands out there that are already clean and they do a very good job. Mm -hmm. But um, it is truly about the seasoning. And that's the thing with most things that we eat. It's about how it has been prepared. And that's why we get so persnickety about who's what we'll eat. I only want ain't so-and-so's coconut cake. I don't want so-and-so's potato salad. Nope, don't be bringing me anybody's <laughs> fried chicken except my daddy. I mean, that's how we are, right? Yeah, and that yeah. there's that there's that endearing factor in there as well as what's it tasting like? And then somebody else may come along and try something that somebody has just sworn up and down. This is the only way it's to be and go, oh. I don't think so. So it it really is uh, so much about how we have grown up, who it is that's prepared what. And, um, you know, I can bring this little insertion in. I have a, a, a new book. It's a children's book. And it's called Can't Nobody Make a Sweet Potato Pie Like Our Mama. And it's really more about the story of these little children. Uh, they're twins and their relationship with their grandmother. And the lessons that are being taught, anyone can read it and uh, just feel something that they they probably experienced themselves at some point. But um, I tell people all the time, mine may not be the best sweet potato pie to you. It's just the idea of making this dessert and giving it its honor, its propers in terms of where it's been placed in our lives. So um, that can be any anything. It, for somebody, it might be chocolate chip cookies for all I care. But if that's what's been the heart and soul of your, of your culture and your heritage and your family, then so be it. Um, just bring that connection in and share it. Share it, of course. And share it in a way that helps to to bridge relationships. That's that's how I look at it. So see, Don, you remember that. That that memory that came back for Don, that was quite a memory uh, of your father and what that was about. Yep. As someone who has gotten one of Rose McGee's sweet potato pies, um, the sherry, <laughs> I am. I, but to be fair, I live across the street from where she works, so it was an easy thing for me. Um, <laughs> and it was something that I took and I shared. And I've shared this story before because I, whenever I, you know, I swear, whenever you're a guest on our show, I cry, Rose. So because it's like there's so much love, and it makes me like cry. Um, and I did when I had when I got your pie, and I brought it to my mom. And me, my mom, and my niece, three generations of us, um, enjoyed the pie together. And so that oh. sharing, you know, it was, a, mm. it was a way of making sweet potato that my mom had never known could be done. So we devoured that mm. thing in one sitting. <laughs> uh. I, think we saved, I think we saved a slice for my dad because he was at work at the time. Um, and so it is, that, it is part of that sharing with with each other kind of the things that we love to eat, right? One of the things that um, people always ask me is, where do I get the best egg rolls? 
And I always say, my mom. Yeah. That, that's, you know, <laughs> I I go to restaurants and people are like, should we order egg rolls? I'm like, no, they're never as good as my mom's egg rolls. I don't even try egg rolls at restaurants. Just, I know they're mm. not going to be as good. And some people think that's really weird, but I think, you know, it's just what you were saying and with your new book. It's, it's more than just the food, although it is technically, in my opinion, still the best. We still got <laughs> standards. Let's be clear. Like, there's still some standards you're going to hit. <laughs> but it is kind of also, you know, that experience of all of us around the big bowl, you know, rolling yeah. egg rolls the propane tank in the garage so we can fry them you know it's it's a communal thing at the mm. same time and, and mm-hmm. with my community at least you know now we have Hmong town and Hmong village and, and Hmong restaurants all over uh we didn't have that when i was young the only time we could get papaya salad was at the Hmong new year at the civic mm. center each year you know and so it was mm. like it was always mm. a treat it was always a treat to be able to go there and get those sorts of things because otherwise you had to make it and like you mm-hmm. said, I'd mm-hmm. only eat papaya salad from certain people because certain people made it a lot better <laughs> than other people. And so I was like, oh, who's bringing the yeah. papaya? Okay, I'll eat hers. You know, um, it's still <laughs> like that when I go to the Hmong town or Hmong village. I only buy papaya from specific stalls. Um, but it was one of those mm-hmm. things like growing mm-hmm. up, we didn't have and Now kids are just like, I want papaya and then go out and get it on DoorDash. You know, something that we never mm. had. It brings up, and this is actually a question that I've I've had for you because I consider you, Miss um, McGee, one of the culture keepers in my universe, right? In 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 so much as not as you are the holder of all the facts and all the ideas, but it's through you that I have gotten access to think about and engage with aspects of my own self and identity, um, and see that there's power and meaning to them. Um, one of the cultural artifacts that you've produced, and this is to your point, um, plea that like there's, there's, there's meaning and there's, there's, there's story that helps you even reflect on your own cultural space. I, I see that as an asset. Black culture always throughout history has helped folks understand and digest and be proud of their own cultural space. This is why, you know, the, the idea of celebrating black culture tends to have benefits around, which is very different for some folks who may be celebrating a culture that's about excluding others and it doesn't have the same fruit that's produced as a result, right? Irish mm. heritage, you know, in, in parades produce a pride for other people at that cultural level in ways that, uh, you know, a gathering of white folks to celebrate <laughs> white culture can only is often equated to power or something different because that's how it's been throughout history. And so there's some interesting intersections there and your work, particularly your story circle work, but also in the cultural elements you've produced from, from your books to your play Kumbaya, the Juneteenth story um, to the stories that you've told have kind of kept these core elements that we've been talking about, about even the meaning behind our foods. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious from, from your perspective, this black history month and we've, Got to contend with, you know, black folks trending because we got 28 days to trend, 29 sometimes. And, and 29 this year. 29 this year, yes. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, what what are some of the ways that you are enjoying kind of that? And I'm ascribing this role to you because you could be like, that's not my role and, you know, keep, do whatever with it. But I see you as a culture keeper for myself, for my family and for many folks that I know. And I'm just curious 
what has been some of the conversations or engagements you've had so far this Black History Month to up that that have been around kind of uplifting and helping remind folks of that culture? Mm. Well, I'm, you know, excited about schools and what's happening in schools in the Robbinsdale area schools, for example, for the third year, um, they are actually making sweet potato pie for the entire district hmm. as their dessert in every school in the Robbinsdale area schools. And oh. I know the, the first year they did it, uh, they contacted me and said, we would like permission to use your recipe, if that's all right. And I said, uh, it's absolutely all right. I'm very honored. And there were uh, things that, you know, I was suggesting to them as tips to use. And the pie was delicious. Then last year, when they did it, they actually invited me in to talk to all of their cafeteria managers across the district so that they would understand why they were making this. They didn't do that the first year, but mm -hmm. they somebody thought about it. It's probably some feedback from somebody saying, why are we doing this? Um, and it was really great to sit down with them and explain to them why you're making this particular dessert. But it's also been equally gratifying to be in one of the schools during lunch and to hear and watch the students themselves. Uh, one little girl, this, this is uh, elementary school, the first year, little girl sitting there and she said, mm-mm. I don't eat nobody's grand, nobody's pie but my grandmama's. <laughs> and she had her little neck rolling and everything. And her other little friends were sitting around her and they said, but it's really good. And she says, no, it ain't as good as my grandmama's. And this little, everybody else said, oh, but you haven't tasted it yet. She said, I don't care. And mm -hmm. I uh, could hear it. So I walked over to see what was going on. And she, she said it again to them, um, and I said, well, you know, I'm not offended by that. And she says, well, I don't mean to, you know, be offensive. It's just the way it is. I said, all right. And I respect that. And so <laughs> that was that. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, <laughs> her friends were having a great time eating it. And then last year, it was interesting to see other cultural groups engaged in it. Last year, it was a middle school that I went to. And so there was a group of African-born kids sitting together and they were talking about how good it was and they really enjoyed eating it. So that was a good thing to see. And they had not had sweet potato pie before, but um, they wanted to go back and get seconds. <laughs> so that was a good, you know, sign. But it was just beautiful, first of all, that the district did see um, the relevance of it. And then there's another school um, in Hopkins Junior High School through their family and consumer science. And they decided to make it a project because we actually have a curriculum um, around the whole sweet potato comfort pie process. And we have something called pie identity. So while the pie is cooking and baking and cooling off, they get a chance to examine themselves and what it is that's important to them and how much is impacting them. And the sad thing is um, the top two things that keep coming up are bullying and racism. And this is what our kids are going through every day. Now, they also had a chance to present pies 
And they did give pies to some of the staff, of course. But you know who they gave pies to a bigger number? You want to guess who those kids decided they wanted to give a pie to more so? The police. No, 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 no. School bus drivers. The school bus drivers. That's who got the most pies. Isn't that interesting? And... um, well, that was a beautiful thing to see as well. So it's just been that. And now this year we'll flip from one thing to the other here, but with uh, the 60th anniversary, actually it was last year, now that we're in 2024, the 60th anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, there was an event, a conference that was held down there called Bombing Gilead. And I was invited to come down and be a part of that. And one of the things that they did was connect me to a high school in Birmingham that has a culinary art school program. And they made sweet potato comfort pies. And the pies were presented as lunch. The hotel actually allowed them to bring them in and serve as lunch. But also several of the pies were gifted to some of the survivors of that bombing because many of them are still living in their 70s and 80s and also some of the young people who were right out there in Kelly Ingram Park who had been attacked by the water hoses and those dogs and they were some of them were presented pies as well can you imagine how I I mean even talking about it now it gives me chills I never would have thought that a sweet potato pie would have been place in that kind of Hmm. setting to be gifted Mm -hmm. in that manner and to see those kids walk in with the pies and the African drums going and they had on their white chef culinary uh, jackets in there and these were all mostly black kids and a few you know um, other kids mixed in there too but for all 19 of them that came in and then to receive a standing ovation from the folks in the room was just, all I could do was stand there and cry as I welcomed them in. (laughs) So this kind of keeps the conversation going about why certain things are important, but it's deeper than that because I watched some of the young people in Birmingham being interviewed for the first time on television for the news cameras about these pies and Why are you making these pies? And what was it like to do it? And it was just amazing to see them open up and talk as they did about this experience. So, you know, any way we can give confidence to our children um, so that they can grow up and be these prolific presenters like Anthony Galloway and all of them, it's just a beautiful thing. So we, as you know, Anthony are now looking forward to going down to St. Peter, Minnesota, where they will be doing a similar thing. Their culinary high school kids are making the pies, and they will also learn a little bit about Juneteenth in the process. Hmm. I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm a little stuck because you know there are so many aspects of kind of reclamation but but 
you you just have a way of of kind of distilling us down to like the the the, the basic nugget <laughs> and and making the letting the main thing be the main thing. You write in in the play Kumbaya the Juneteenth story when the play is culminating and you're and and, and telling this history of Juneteenth um, in a in a way that tries to deepen our understanding and engagement with the real people. Um, I see that through line in what happens when we sit around. You you can be as mad as you want to. You can have all the things happening around the world, but to be able to sit down and do something as 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 human as eat something that is that 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 tastes good that connects to a story um it, it, it can be as simple a nugget as that one of the things that you got me thinking about we keep talking about sweet potato pie as, as a as a as a mechanism and an entry point into what we understand is much deeper of course um but it takes me back to the georgia sea islands where some of my family hails from and you know you couldn't Going into fields, you couldn't sit and bake a sweet potato. I mean, if you've bitten into a raw sweet potato pie, that's not a pleasant experience at all. No. <laughs> right? But no. even without any of the extra butter, cinnamon, whatever it is, but you bake that thing, it becomes something completely different. And how luxurious it, it was for my ancestor. I can't speak for everybody, but like I, I have an ancestral through line story in the Carolinas and the Georgia Sea Islands of being able to bake them. There's a there's a song from the Georgia Sea Islands called Rag Levy and in Gullah. And it talks about like a demonstration of freedom being able to sit and bake the pie or bake the uh the sweet potato. Cause when you were working in the fields, you may have access to the sweet potato. Um and but you'd have to have it raw and you'd stuff it in your pockets and you'd go and you have this thing that's unappetizing raw. But even that gets can it can be flipped around and turned into something that's accessible and actual enjoyable. Uh, a song that Dr. Bernice Reagan from Sweet Honey in a Rock would sing often is Juba, where where that music now carries this story of Juba this mm -hmm. and Juba that and Juba killed a yellow cat and get over double trouble Juba in Gullah, meaning like you you give us the scraps, but we turn around and make that something that fulfills and nourishes us, and now you can't even stand it, and so. Like there's this this way that of sailing into the wind of that pride, and and so I I I I think about that as as we as we think about how we can maximize all that we get out of Black cultural elements. What are stories? What are aspects or places of history that you think folks should really go if they want to nurture a, a deeper understanding of the assets of Black culture? What are some places that you would point folks? Oh. You just mentioned it, actually. Um, you know, Hilton Head is a Gullah Island, and many mm -hmm. people don't know that. Right, right. When I was referencing the Gullah language uh, in Juba and Ragalevi, yeah, you're talking about Hilton Head off of the coast of South Carolina. This is where, uh, for the audience, this is where uh, captive Africans were first. Some of, well, this is kind of the area where captive Africans were first brought um, and the descendants of the Gullah people are a mixture of many different African cultural groups that were part of those enslaved peoples coming and working on those islands and living in that area and therefore preserved the culture that was there. This gentleman in Hilton Head, he and his family, um, it's probably about eight or nine of his brothers, and they, they've all just sort of created their... Um, 
fenceless, no fences, but they're in their house and next door is theirs and so forth. It's like their own compound right there in Hilton Head. And that's where they, they reside. But he is so incredible and has, um, he guides the tours. So if you ever go there, you ask for the Gullah Heritage Tour and that would be that family. But I remember listening to him speak once and he said, first African-Americans, especially, he said anybody, but especially African-Americans should come here before they even go to Africa if they can. Because when you come here, you're going to understand how a little bit closer you existed in this environment on this continent. So when you've got people, and I've had the honor of guiding a tour with women on a, uh, I call it a um, Gullah Low Country Southern Food Healing Tour. And that's what we did. We started there. We, we had to understand. And they were all mesmerized because none of them had ever been there. They didn't know anything about this aspect of culture. They didn't know about people who were basically trapped on these islands, these beautiful islands. And all they could do was commune with each other and created their own dialect. And they were also able to, to preserve the manner in which they cooked. Um, before they came. So, you know, much to do with, with seafood and, and rice, of course, and the baskets, as we know, and the weaving maintained as it had been when they were, you know, in Africa. So it's amazing, the beauty, the richness. Um, and also, when I learned that these baskets are made out of sweet grass, I thought, now, look at that. Look how we have these things in common with the indigenous people of this of this this con continent this, as we know it, right? This country. So here you have um, that group who try to maintain aspects of the history so that people will understand um, the Gullah culture or Geechee, depending on where you are, particularly if you're off the coast of Florida. And so here, um, I just I just love it and I've appreciated it. And um, I'm just grateful that um, I have an opportunity to uh, share that with others as well. There are so many experiences that we could go all the way around. And again, this isn't designed to be a catch-all for everything that you should know about Black history, but just mm -hmm. to, the, the the original imagination of Negro History Week was to be a place where we kickstart and rejuvenate our thinking and imagination, whether it's scholastic, scientific, cultural, artistic, whatever it is, um, around, you know, Black identity and imagination, especially since the first universities in the world are in the continent of Africa. The first eye surgeries occur in the continent of Africa. You have in the Georgia Sea Islands, a place where Black culture is insulated and new dialects, as you said, come forward because the plantation owners have to go back home off the island and leave you there. And so there's some insulation in, in the things that happen as a result of that. Um, and so there's all these different tidbits that run through. Uh, I, I'm going to put your words back in front of you again, just because I've grown up with them so much. But but in again, just re referring to your play Kumbaya, the Juneteenth story, you write in into that some areas of tension 
that folks don't often talk about, especially historically, in, in, in particular, the tension between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, which many of us don't didn't grow up with. This. We grew up with this kind of vanilla story of the great emancipator uh, and the great orator. And we don't ever talk about the fact that the great orator was constantly challenging the great emancipator to actually emancipate when he was looking for every reason not to uh, and still preserve the, the, the United States. And so I'm curious about, as you think about what are the tension points have come up for you? Well, you know, what's so interesting is I don't think much has changed uh, in that regard. I, 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 we have people who hold political offices and people who are in the decision-making roles. And there are advisors who come to them, right? And they may or may not listen. And yet they stick right there. They hang in there. We we know them. We see them all the time. They're, they're there. I mean, you know, we can name some of them. But the whole thing with that gets me, there's several things, because we know that Lincoln was signing a lot of stuff during that time. And one of those things he signed was also the execution of the 38 in Mankato area, right? All of that was under the same penmanship is what we've been taught. And so the uh, the whole thing of of that that writing and that that document doesn't set well with everybody. And I can certainly understand why. And yet that language in there that talks about the gradual emancipation, it's like white people went so far as to say, okay, yeah, we'll free them, but we're not gonna let them go right away. We just gotta give them a little bit of time to get acclimated to their freedom. So they can't just be gifted it and just give them what they they should have but no we'll give them gradual emancipation oh that you know i would love to sit in on a real debate about that with some historians mm -hmm. who really researched that and what exactly um but we know um um ibram x kendry kind of talked about it a little bit um in his book um, how to be anti-racist, he, he speaks to it uh, a bit as well, and how, you know, these folks who are really supposed to be the great white liberals can sometimes be just as, <laughs> mm -hmm. as, um, mm -hmm. as those who are not, right? Because they think they're looking out for you by protecting you from their lens. And that is what we're kind of dealing with a lot these days, too. Mm. And I can remember even back in my um, back in my um, corporate days, remembering um, a, a job promotion that I didn't get because a brother, mind you, <laughs> decided mm. that, uh, no, she's she's single mom. She needs to be home. She can't do the traveling uh, that's probably going to be required, like the guys can do. Um, and then it was like, oh, nothing to do with her not being capable of the of job. I kid you not. It was all about his decision as to what I would be able to do being a single mom and not. Um, and when I learned that, I, I just I was just livid because he was at on that higher level to make that decision. 
And I had to go and confront him with that. I'm like, is it true? And he says, well, you know, I know this is a little difficult for you, but um, just think about it. Your children need you at home. And (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't that my decision to figure out how I'm going to take care of my children? But that mentality of that thing, I'm like, you know, isn't that probably what somebody said about your black behind because you are and and what are you doing well you know he's black I don't think we should put him in that role because so and so so it's just there's so many levels in which that mentality applies that um it, it definitely can bring on some some tension and contention in in conversations and the way that we act so it still happens I wish I wish the folks listening could see Don and Lee's face as you were telling that story because <laughs> we can see each other on Zoom, but you know it doesn't translate translate on audio. But but those those are the patterns, and 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 we've got method. We we have dealt with these patterns for a long time, and oh, we don't yeah. seem to to yeah. feel like there's much to get. You know, one of the things that's given me life right now on a cultural marker is some is the work that Beyonce's doing. Uh, during the Super Bowl, I don't know if anybody caught it, but she drops a country, uh, some country bangers, and it's calling, it's causing a huge kind of like challenge and riff with some of my uh, white brothers and sisters and friends who feel like country is finally a cultural thing that was produced from their community, and now they're having to force and contend with the realization that. That music started in black community and cultural space <laughs> and are going, wait, wait. Uh, but uh, and, and it sounds like just, so now they're trying to think through that. And they had the same reaction when they figured out that cowboys were black folk. And so and the whole term cowboy comes from black folks. So so like there are these realizations that come in when the rest of the world, sometimes during Black History Month, come to a realization that. uh learning black history also tells us about our own history mm-hmm. good and bad positive and negative so i'm sure that that has come across your tables as you do some of this work with the humanity center and with the sweet potato pies as well oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> during, <laughs> during, during this month. and Definitely. you know anthony i just wanted to, to add that um and listening to this is fascinating Another another aspect of, of fascination that I look forward to each week is finding your roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates, mm-hmm. especially when he has black guests on there. And when they're able to track down those family histories, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely blown away by the number of individuals who who shortly after being emancipated were able to own land start businesses learn how to read vote elect representatives to their um state and federal levels all this happened in a very short time after emancipation and and while their individual stories and their background and histories it tells a powerful lesson because it it it's telling us just like you related here in terms of history 
that our history, so much of our history has been omitted, purposely omitted, so that so that individuals would think country music is a white phenomenon. Mm. But when you even when you look at the roots of the, the the music itself, it comes from a whole different and similar strain of blues. And so I mean but I'm just yeah, I'm I don't want to get a on my little horse pad here, I'm just saying <laughs> that even in finding your roots, you will hear these individual stories that add this richness. Mm-hmm. The you know, because we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know that because we weren't told and we weren't allowed to learn that. Yeah. And so, what we do know is what we are now trying to find out on our own. And there is so much more about our history and who we are that nobody was told and that we're beginning to find out. Even in a program by Dr. Uh, Henry Louis Gates that you can watch every week, right? And it's fun, but it's very educational. And I would encourage folks, if they don't watch that program, to, to give it a look. Right. Well, I've, I've so appreciated having you on and be able to, to just continue to add and expand and deepen some of the ways in which we uh, can look behind the culture to the roots and to the things and the stories that go along with it. Um, you know, again, just because I want to keep throwing your words back at you, you write in Kumbaya, the Juneteenth story, which you which is being put on again uh, this this year. And so you can see Miss um, McGee's retelling of a story to teach about the history of Juneteenth and how we even got to emancipation of African-Americans. Um, I look forward to deepening that with you because one of the things you brought to my attention, we talked a little bit about on counter stories at Juneteenth this past year that, you know, we'll talk about general Gordon Granger, but not the 3000 or so black soldiers that helped to like put the pressure on because uh, he didn't want to be bothered to be there in the first place. Um, and so, but what you write in that play, that we must develop a burning desire to soak up all the knowledge our hungry minds can hold, especially having been so long being denied speaking language, being denied speaking our culture, being denied teaching that history. And that comes with some good and some pain. And so I just thank you so much for being here um, and, and helping to connect some of these dots for us. What are some of the things that you're up to now? Because if following you around and what you do, somebody can learn a whole lot following that, that following your, your work. So what are some things that you're up to right now that, that just would be dope for folks to, to get to know and participate? in? Well, I'm just trying to keep up with you young people so that I can continue <laughs> to learn. I'm excited, excuse me, about the book um, that that's been quite interesting. Can't nobody make a sweet potato comfort. I mean, can nobody make a sweet potato pie like our mama? That was published by the uh, Minnesota Historical Society Press, and just you know, doing readings and getting around with that. Hopefully, one day to uh, transform that into a play, a, a children's story. I think it would be a fun production. Mm. And um, you know, the other thing I just want to be encouraging as I speak, because you know. Um, much of what I'm doing. I've been doing it for so many years. It's not new. I wrote Kumbaya, the Juneteenth story almost 30 years ago. And it's just 
now, you know, these past two years since the 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 Juneteenth has become a national holiday and officially a, a, a state holiday, it the interest of it is taking on a different um, you know a different level and 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 that's good that's good but um, it's just been great to um, be alive <laughs> to see some things happen as they're happening. Um, so that's sort of the 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 main thing uh, for me. I'm excited um, uh, that my daughter. I can mention her too. She grew up in the Kumbaya production, and she too is now mayor of Golden Valley. She was just recently first elected black mayor of Golden Valley. First yeah. black mayor of Golden yeah. Valley. So yeah. there is that, you know, that I'm I'm just really excited about. She's got a challenge, of course. Nothing, not about nothing about this is easy. And that's the thing about life too. We we tend to romanticize certain things. And uh, you look at President Obama. He he was just like every other president. He walked in there with dark hair, and next thing he you know, his hair looks like, um, <laughs> you know, a, a snowfall. It it it's stressful, and there's so much to deal with. In and no matter where you are in it. Um, but yet somebody has to do it, right? So I admire those young people like your brother-in-law who also grew up in this production. He was the first, um, one of the first main characters, Melvin Carter. So somebody uh, said, who was that that sent a message the other day and said, oh, so Rose McGee and Tony Carter are producing uh, mayors. Huh? They're giving birth <laughs> to mayors. Is that what the, what's happening with that? Uh, through Kumbaya? <laughs> I don't know, but it's just been a it's been a, a blessing and a joy to um to do what I do and yeah. So now I'm dashing off to do something else. <laughs> well, we have appreciated having you here to deepen our our kind of Black History Month series. And I'll 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 um end us with the quote because we've talked about a lot, but just to, just even something as sacred as as what you call one of the most sacred desserts of our culture. Um, in sweet potato pie has so much story behind it. Hopefully this Black History Month, you don't just consume the culture and not consume the stories and the richness that undergird all of it. And so I'll leave us, I'll leave us with this as we close today. Um, in the words of Rose McGee, as she received her Facing Race Award, she says, through food and through relationships, we have sustained and overcome a lot. Pain is just something that has been a part of our lives for generations, but yet, we survive. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and partner of the Dendros Group. I'm Huey Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. And our guest? I'm Rose McGee. I'm president and founder of Sweet Potato Comfort Pie. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.